around and see his fingerprints everywhere. And man, that was such a great reminder. Thank you for sharing that, brother. And thank you for taking so much of your own time to track down boxes, to come, come on. I know you're passionate about this, and I know you don't do it for any recognition, but y'all need to know, like, Brent, Brent loves, loves this because he believes in what God is doing in it, and that's how we use our gifts, right? Um, he's using his gift to make a difference, man, so I'm just grateful, grateful for you, brother. Uh, I want to give an, one more quick announcement, is that on Monday, November 2nd, we are going to, with other churches, have a prayer night at Armitage Church. That's November 2nd at 7 p.m. Uh, we don't know if it's all going to happen like we're planning. Obviously, a lot of restrictions on our city. New things are coming. We don't know exactly. Thank you guys, though, for, for wearing your masks and putting up with the temperature checks and, and social distancing in here. Um, if we're able to, we hope that we are. We are going to gather to pray at Armitage Church. Uh, there's like six or seven other churches already connected and ready to be a part of it. Um, we also, there's also going to be a live stream of this on YouTube just in case uh, you're not able to come in person. We know there are different restrictions for you. But man, we're just praying that this would work out because uh, obviously November 3rd, Tuesday, is a big day for our nation. The Brook is going to be a polling site again, and, uh, which means that hundreds of people are going to come into our building to cast a vote for the next president. And we just pray that God would use somehow them entering this space as a reminder to them that they need this God. Um, and so we're just praying that God would use it. Um, I want to pray uh, one more time. Pray for that. Pray for this message and get ready to dive in God's word. Because the chapter we're looking at today is by, called by many the greatest chapter in the Bible. So I'm about you, man, but I'm pretty excited about that. So let's pray. God, I, I ask that your spirit would just continue to move and work in us. Lord, I just, um, I'm blown away by, by all that you've done for us, all that you are still doing and all you promised to do. And again, that you would use us, Lord. You'd use me, God. Um, and I know even, even as we're singing, God, I feel in my heart sometimes this desire to want to do things to make you happy, to, to get your approval. And even as I'm singing this and preaching this, I'm reminded, God, you're telling me that you look at me through the lens of your son and that I'm accepted. I'm not forsaken. I am who you say that I am. And, and Lord, we need these reminders. I pray that today your spirit will work in us, do a beautiful thing, give us the ability to hear you, to see you, God, in ways that we couldn't do without you. Uh, work in us, God. Be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the votes will be cast November 3rd, uh, you've already saw this, seen this begin to take place, but as you go to news channels, you're going to hear different uh, news reports about how a different candidate could win the presidency. Here in America, the popular vote doesn't win the presidency. You can have the most votes and still lose. Because here, our presidency is based on something called the Electoral College, which means that every state is, is given a certain amount of votes that are dedicated to that state. And if you win the state, you get those votes. Whereas here in Illinois, we have 20 electoral votes. So if a candidate wins Illinois, they get those 20 votes. A president needs to gain 270 electoral votes to become the nominee. Some states always, or I should say, usually vote the same way. Some states are just strictly, this state ends up always voting Democratic, or this state ends up always voting Republican. And then you have these states that are called, often called swing states, where from one presidential campaign to another, they may go back and forth. And typically, the presidency hinges on who wins those states. 
And so you're going to hear a lot of political pundits give their opinions that, oh, if this person wins this state, this is their pathway to victory here in this campaign. But if they lose this state, they've got to concede. And that's what happens. When someone's uh, running for president or any elected office, but especially for president, and they realize that they don't have a pathway to victory, that's when they call the other, uh, other person running against them and concede and say, hey, we no longer have a pathway. Congratulations on your victory. That's the way it works out. What strikes me is the person who makes that phone call does so because they don't have a pathway to victory. And when that pathway is closed, they concede a loss. When I think about the Christian life, I think there are many of us who no longer believe that there is a pathway for victory over sin in your life. I think there are many of us who've conceded to the fact that the sins we struggle with are the sins we'll always struggle with, and this is just the way it's going to be. I think many of us have listened to the pundits of culture that say, you fail like this once, you're always going to fail like this. We're hearing the voices of people in our lives or the voices of our own sin nature saying, we're always going to fail at this. You're going to mess it up. You are not going to amount to nothing. Just give up. Concede. Make that phone call. It's over for you. And I suspect there are many of us even here today in person or those watching online who have thrown in the towel, who've conceded that there is no longer a pathway for victory for them. And I want you to know today that there is actually a pathway for victory for you. I want you to understand today that God has marked out a way for you to live a victorious life over sin and temptation. Many of us have treated temptation and we step into it thinking that, you know what, since I'm not going to defeat it, I'm just going to try to manage my sin. I'm going to try to dabble in it without going all in. It's like going into Baskin Robbins of sin and we get little samplers of this temptation or a sample of that sin, but we don't go and buy the whole waffle cone, you know what I mean? We're not going all in. And so we can say, you know, I'm not doing that bad. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just taste testing my flesh desires. I'm, I'm just satisfying a little bit. And we think we're good because we're not getting the waffle cone with the drizzle and the sprinkles on top. But the truth of the matter is, whether you're dabbling with little samples or you're eating an entire cone, in either case, you have conceded to the fact that you've got to give in to your flesh nature. God wants you and I to understand that he's marked out a way for victory for you. I don't know what sins and temptations you are battling with today, but God knows, and you know. And you know if you've given up hope, and God knows if you've given up hope. And God wants you to know that you can live that spirit-empowered life that allows you to walk in God's victory every single day. That God can give you victory over your sin, over your temptations, over your addictions, over the things that you've been battling with. Whether you've been doing that for a year or two or 10 or 20 years, God is offering you a pathway for victory and he wants you to walk in that church. We're going to find that pathway in the book of Romans chapter 8. 
Many people have said the book of Romans is the greatest letter ever written. And those same folks would think oftentimes that the Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest letter. And so we're about to dive into something that is extraordinary. Certainly all the scripture is God-breathed. There's not one more important, but in many ways there are some passages, some books, and in this case some chapters that are just so packed with life-giving truth that we can say, man, we got, we got to soak in this one for a minute. Because in Romans 8 is a passage we turn to when you're feeling confused in life. Because Romans 8 tells you that God works out all things to the good of those who love him. When, when you feel like you don't have value, Romans 8 says that God did not spare even his own son to rescue you. When, when you feel like you don't know who you are, Romans 8 says that through faith in Jesus, you can be adopted into God's family and you can call him Abba, Father. When you feel that you've messed up and you're too far from God and his redeeming hand, Romans 8 tells you that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. Neither death nor life or angels or demons, nothing. And when you feel condemned, and when you feel powerless against sin, when you feel like there is no pathway to victory, Romans 8 tells you what I'm about to read for you, verses 1 through 11. So would you stand to your feet with me as I dive in and read Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. This is what God has to say for you who feel like throwing in the towel. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That deserves a little more than that, y'all. I know I'm not preaching yet, but come on. You just hear that. You got you to gotta shout to that one. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done. Can you say God has done? God has done done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on death, on on the flesh, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Watch this. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him 
who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen, right? Glory to God for that. You may be seated, church. This, this passage preaches itself as you read it. Man. You see, the book of Romans is a progression. In Romans 1, we, we see how humanity strays from God. And God has made himself clear in nature and all around. And the human heart rejects him. And we go into all kinds of evil and wickedness. Romans 2 tells us that even those who think they're good are legalists and in their hearts they're still wicked and hard-hearted. And Romans 3 says the problem is everybody. We've all sinned. Last week in Romans 7 we saw the sin problem is so bad that we can know what we want to do, but don't do it. And the things we don't want to do, we end up doing. Because Romans 7 tells us that nothing good dwells in us apart from Jesus. It goes on to say that we don't even have the ability to do what is good. That's why Paul says in the end of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's where he gives that beautiful statement, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who rescues us from the sin that we have no power over. Amen to that, right? But then we're asking, But what do I do when I want to do what's right but don't have the ability to do it? Like, what am I supposed to do when I know, like, hey, don't do that, but in my flesh I want to do it, and I end up doing it? Do I just need to concede to the fact that I'm going to lose my battles? Or do I have to, or do I have a pathway for victory in front of me? You see, Romans 7 tells us that ultimately victory is Jesus's and that there is a battle that wages war within us. But Romans 8 then tells us not only has there victory in Jesus, but there's also ongoing victory through him. There is a way for us to live a life that's victorious. And what he wants us to understand from the very beginning is that the way we live a life of victory over sin and temptation begins with understanding and operating from who we are and not who we used to be. It's who we are that ultimately matters if you are indeed a follower of Jesus. This is why Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now, now in Christ, now as follower of Jesus, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation against you if you are a child of God today. Condemnation comes, it is, it is, it is to be, it's something that uh, when we're justly deemed as guilty and subject to punishment. You see, apart from Jesus, we deserve condemnation. We are justly deemed as guilty. We've broken God's law. And we rightly deserve God's punishment. His wrath ought to be poured out on me and on you apart from Jesus. And when that happens, we then will be separated from God for all of eternity in hell apart from God. 
That's what is deserved to us apart from Jesus. But therefore now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, Paul says. And so basically what he wants you and I to do is to operate from this identity, not as those who are constantly feeling condemned by God, but through faith in Jesus to recognize that God doesn't condemn us. In fact, he already punished our sin when he punished Jesus on the cross. So what God is saying here, what Paul is writing, is that we need to understand where we are, who we are, and whose we are, who we belong to. So what has God done? Well, God says here in verse, in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has set you and I free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin says this, when you break it, you buy it. When you break God's commands, you suffer the consequences of it. That's the law of sin and the law of death. It's the one that we are all subject to. But what we're told here is that the law of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. See, what God has done is he has stepped into the ring against this formidable foe, these two heavyweights called sin and death. It's like stepping into the ring against Ali and Tyson in their prime. And God has gone toe-to-toe, taking the jabs of sin and taking the right hook of death. And what God has done was shown himself to be victorious through Jesus as Jesus raised from the dead. He pried open the locked jaws of sin and death. That's what God has done. But how did God do it? Well, he goes on to say in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. See, the law can't get us right with God. In fact, what the law does, it shows you that you're wrong, that you break God's law, and that you ought to be condemned. But what God has done is this. He says that that, that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. See, God sent his own son. That's how God did it, how he freed us. He sent his own son in the form of sinful flesh, in the form of humanity, for sin, he says. You see, we need to understand something about our God. We at the Brook believe what the Bible teaches, that our God is a triune God. We believe in the Trinity. Yes, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that the teaching of the Trinity is not in the Bible. See, the Bible makes clear that the Father is Almighty God, eternal God. The Bible also makes clear that the Son is Almighty God, eternal God. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that the Word in John 1.14 became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's Jesus. God became a man. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. There is one God. We believe in the Trinity, And that Jesus is God in human flesh. And he came down in the form of humanity, taking on 100% humanity while maintaining 100% divinity. And he came for sin. He came with a mission. 
He came to do business with our sin because you and I couldn't do it. We were in the lock jaws of sin and death, but Jesus had a pride open. He came with that purpose. It says that he condemned sin in the flesh. When he died, he took on sin. It was condemned. It was paid for for you and me. In order that, in verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not, ac- walk not according to the flesh but the Spirit. See, when Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, and when we are found in Jesus, it's as if that same perfection is applied to us, even as we break it. This is how merciful our God is. But you know, that's not the only thing Paul says, because he says the law of the Spirit, in verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, the law has power. So if you even just took out the word law and put the word power, it makes even more clarity. The power of the Spirit of life has set you free from the power of sin and death. See, Paul is saying not only did the Father send the Son and the Son died, but also the Holy Spirit is at work in your salvation. Again, the triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to press pause for a moment because I want you to understand some things about the Holy Spirit. Because Romans 8 is the chapter to learn about the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we study the Spirit, in theology we call that pneumatology. Because the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and theology is to study something. So when we study the attributes of the Holy Spirit, we understand that the Holy Spirit is God. That's why we call him holy. Only God is holy. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is God. And as God, the Holy Spirit has personhood. Now, that doesn't mean that he has hands and feet, that he's a person, like a being, like, like we are with the tangible bodies, because not even the Heavenly Father has a tangible body. He's a spirit. So the Holy Spirit, though, has personhood, and by personhood I mean is that the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit moves. He acts. He is a he and not an it. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He is God. And as God, he has inspired the scriptures. 2 Peter 1.21 says that the Spirit moved through humans, inspiring them to write the word of God that we have. It is God-breathed. That same Spirit now gives us the eyes to interpret the words that he himself wrote down. And then when we read his word, that same Spirit convicts our sin, convicts us of our sin. He shows us our failures. So when you feel conviction over sin, be encouraged because that means the Spirit's at work in you. When you see how you break God's law and you feel guilt over that, be encouraged because the Spirit is showing you you're guilty. But in addition to this, he's not just a God who shows you your guilt, but he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He actually will also then give you faith. Faith to believe that Jesus died for you. You can't muster up faith from within because you were stuck in sin and death's locked jaws. But the Spirit says, I'm going to give you faith to release that grip so that you can look on Jesus and be saved. This is what the Holy Spirit does. But watch this. He's also at work in the new life you get. 
He regenerates you. He causes you to become alive again. See, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus, he says, in order to get to the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, like, like i got to re-enter my mother's womb and re-exit it? Like, he's the worst literalist ever, right? And Jesus is like, no, no, come on, Nicodemus. I'm, I'm speaking figurative here, right? Because what Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand is when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit causes us to become born again spiritually. It's the Holy Spirit who does that, according to Titus chapter 3, when it says that he saved us, not by works we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3. It's the Spirit of God who remakes us. And then when he saves us, he then seals you. Ephesians 1 says that he is the guarantee of your eternal inheritance. He's the down payment that you're going to get to heaven. And that down payment can't be stripped away because the Spirit has sealed you. It's this Holy Spirit that Paul says that the power of the Spirit has set you free from the power of sin and death. So Paul says, so you got to operate out of who you are now, not who you used to be. Because who you are now is someone who's been set free from sin and empowered by the Holy Spirit as a new creation. That's who you are if you've trusted in Jesus. He continues to indwell us. He continues to empower us. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Things we could not do on our own, God is doing in us. So don't concede to losing. There is a pathway for victory, and it's based on who you are, what God has done, and it's based on the fact now that you have this Holy Spirit empowering you every day. You see, Paul says there in Romans 8, he says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So Paul's saying this, you want to walk in victory? you got to put your thoughts upon the Holy Spirit. Because on whatever you set your mind becomes your mindset, church. Whatever you set your mind becomes your mindset. Whatever you dwell upon is what you begin to conform to. And Paul's like, as those who've been saved, it is in you to conform and set your mind on the Holy Spirit. To set your mind on the Spirit is to dwell upon Him. It's to let Him govern your way of thinking. It's to let the Spirit be the primary influence over you, to to lead the pattern of your being. The Holy Spirit is whom you soak in. If you ever have an achy body and muscle soreness, many people tell you to take an Epsom salt bath. And one of the reasons is that when you take an Epsom salt bath, the warmth of the bath water will cause your muscles to loosen up. And then the Epsom salt, which is magnesium and sulfate combination, is able to penetrate your skin and to bring uh, relaxation to your body. It, it, It has healing kinds of properties to it. 
but it's only effective if you soak in it, church. In the same way, Paul's saying, you've got to set your mind on the Holy Spirit. You've got to soak on the things of God and let God begin to renew who you are. Because alternatively, if you set your mind on the flesh, it's going to lead to some really difficult conclusions. One well, verse 6, he tells us what kind of things. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. This is what the fleshly lifestyle leads to. Death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hear what he's saying here. He's letting us know that there is a contrast. What will govern your way of thinking? On what will you set your mind? What will become your mindset? If we choose to think upon the things that we know are not in align with the Holy Spirit, it's going to lead you down a path of destruction, death. It's going to make you become hostile to God. Hostility can be an outright shaking your fist at God, but it also could be a distancing yourself from God, a pushing him away. Paul says that those who have their mindset in the flesh do not submit to God's law. They, they break God's law. They, they don't obey God. In fact, they don't even have the capacity to obey God. They ultimately, he says, cannot please God. But watch what he's saying here. He's saying that everyone who's been set free from sin falls under the category of those who set their mind on the Spirit. But you have to walk in that identity. You've got to walk by the power of the Spirit. There is a pathway for victory. See, the victorious Christian life is the Spirit-empowered Christian life. It is a life where we resign ourselves to listen to God and follow him. This doesn't mean that we will never fall into our fleshly sin nature. You and I know how frustrating that is. Not only when we think thoughts of sin, sinful thoughts, but even when we catch ourselves dwelling on them, dwelling on bitterness, dwelling on lust, dwelling on revenge, dwelling on selfish ambition, and the list goes on. And what Paul is saying, like, look, the, the, we're, we're going to trip up, no doubt. Romans 7, right? I do the things I don't want to do sometimes. But there is a road for victory. This doesn't have to be the way you live. What, what, what Paul is saying is, you can actually have victory over the very sins that entangle you. And so just as Setting our mind on the flesh leads to these things. Conversely, setting your mind on the spirit leads to something different. Notice the four things then that ultimately brings about. Where the mindset on the flesh leads to death, when we set our minds on the Holy Spirit and his work, it leads to life. Now, how do we do that? How do we set our minds on the things that lead to life? The things that bring us not just eternal life, but an abundant life. A life that is governed by God. Well, first and foremost, that happens as we set ourselves to be in God's word, church family. We don't know what life is until we understand what God has to say about it. 
We've got to allow ourselves to marinate in the text of Scripture, to, 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 absor- to absorb its flavors like a, like a lechon days before Thanksgiving, church. Are you, are you taking in that flavor? Are, are you soaking in God's word where you're saying, God, as I read your Bible, I'm learning more about you and what you have to say about life and the kind of life you want me to have. Man, I can't stress this enough. We can't live day to day without reading God's word. I don't know how to say that more directly. You just can't survive with your sin nature without reading your Bibles. And I don't say this to read it for reading's sake. I say this to reading for making war's sake. You know, as we go through this Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, Pete Scazzaro talks about just uh, elsewhere about how to, how to have this life of victory. And I heard him say that. He's like, man, he's at a point in his life where he needs to have quiet time with God twice a day now. Actually, I think he does three times a day. But he says in the morning, but by midday, I'm at a place where I'm already back in my flesh nature. And I'm like, man, I know that to be true. I can spend time with Jesus at 7, 7.30 a.m. And by 11 a.m., I'm like, God, this, this, this ugly stuff is coming back. And yet what happens when we go days or weeks or months without opening God's word? Again, I don't say this to guilt you, but I pray by the Holy Spirit's power today, I say this to empower you, to say, I want to walk in this pathway of victory that God has opened for me. I don't need to be a slave to my sin. I don't need to fall prey to my addictions. I don't need to continue in the patterns of sin and repent and sin and repent over the same things for I've done for 2, 10, or 20 years. But God is saying, hey, I want you to have life. And you find life in my son. You find life in my word. Would you marinate in it? How good our God is, church. When our mind is set on the flesh, we become hostile to God. When our mind is set on the spirit, though, we have peace with God, Paul says in verse 6. It's life and peace. Surely we have peace at the moment we put our faith in Jesus. We are no longer God's enemies. We are now his children. But then we go walk in the peace he gives when all our lives have tornadoes and hurricanes and all kinds of things stirring up around us. You actually can have peace. You can walk trusting that God has got you. And there a peace that transcends understanding guards your heart and mind. That's the victory God wants. He doesn't want you walking anxious worried, fearful, but instead to be trusting him. That's the spirit-empowered life that sets our eyes on the peace that God offers through Jesus and in his word. A mind that's set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. In fact, Paul says it cannot even do it if it wanted to. Whereas a mind set on the spirit, the spirit empowers us to actually submit to God. 
where we can say, God, you are my master. I am in your hands. You are the potter. I am the clay. I submit to you, God. And God, when you have commands that are hard for me to obey because I don't like them in my flesh, I want to submit to you. Like when God says, love your enemies, he means that. And though you feel like in your flesh you don't have the power, which is true, but when you live a spirit-empowered life, you actually can love your enemies. In our American cultural climate, we are told not to love our enemies, but to cancel them out. Unfriend them, unfollow them, cut them out of your life. That's not what God teaches us. He says, love your enemies, love your neighbors, and when you don't know how to love, submit to me, and my spirit will teach you how to do it. This is how we set our minds on the spirit. Saying, God, I know your word, I know what you teach, and I need, I need you to help me conform to it. The mind that's set on the spirit also is able to please God, whereas the mind set on the flesh cannot. We can please God. God is pleased in you. And God wants you to walk in that. So let's be those who know God's word, who choose, even if it's just a couple of verses a day to start out with. Let that grow to five verses, to a section, to a chapter, but consume his word. Well, Paul is showing us like there is a way for us to walk in victory. You don't have to concede in defeat. You don't have to listen to the pundits of your flesh and the pundits of your upbringing, the pundits of those around you saying that you're going to always fail. But God, I mean, I got different plans for my child, spirit-empowered plans for my child. But I suspect there are some here today who are still saying, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I even, in, in my best of moments, believe what you're saying. But man, I've been struggling for years with this sin. And on the one hand, I think it's true. On the other hand, I just don't think it's real, realistic for me. I, I don't think God has victory for me. Look, we're going to face temptation. God's not saying you'll never be tempted. But God's saying you can have victory over those temptations. And so when we start to doubt, Paul's like, let, let me break this down for you here in verses 9 through 11 is what he's telling us. Uh, he, he wants to show us and prove to us without a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit not just indwells but also empowers every child of God. This is what he says here in verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. See, he's saying that if you know Jesus, then you've got the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, that means you don't belong to Jesus. Look, he goes on to say, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But, in verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's making this connection for us. Because I think some of us would say, I believe in Jesus, I just can't have victory over sin. And Paul's like, but you got the Holy Spirit, right? Because if you belong to Jesus, you have God indwelling you, empowering you. 
And you can't have God empowering you if you don't belong to Jesus. And so when you feel that you can't have victory over sin, you need to cling on to what you know to be true. If you know that Jesus died for you, that means you belong to him. And so if you belong to him, his spirit is in you. And if his spirit is in you, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. You've been set free from sin and death. So we grab hold of what we know. and It's like we climb that ladder to receive all the promises when we can't get to them at first glance. Old teachers would say that was the gold, God's golden chain. You grab the bottom rung and you just pull each one and hold on to each promise that links to the other. See, the Spirit of God wants us to understand that He's in you. And He's in you to give you an abundant life. He's in you to raise you. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit that dwells in you. See, what Paul is saying is that The same spirit that raised Jesus raises you each day and will raise you ultimately one day. What he means is this. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were born again. The old you died and a new you has come to life. The spirit has raised you and he's empowered you to walk in victory. But until Jesus comes back, we're going to die. Your physical body will die. And so the Spirit is like, I'm not just promising to raise you now, but I'm also promising that when Christ returns, I'm going to raise your dead body then. And I'm going to give you a new body that can never die again. This is our identity. This is who we are. And from there, we operate. We operate from whose we are and who we are and walk that Spirit-filled life. Church, if God has set you free, then let's live in that freedom. In the end of the 19th century, that great child of God, the Methodist woman, Harriet Tubman, lived here in our country. She was born as a slave in Maryland but was able to escape her slave owners and get freedom. It was a treacherous, dangerous route she took, but she was able to taste freedom, church. And when she tasted freedom, it did something to her. It caused her to be so compelled by the taste that she now went back to try to rescue others who were still slaves. She did 13 missions going back to rescue 70-plus slaves in what is now known as the Underground Railroad, a pathway from a slave state to a free state with people who were sympathetic to the abolitionist causes, who would hide slaves in their homes and guide them along their journeys. You see, Harriet Tubman's experience of freedom was so compelling she could not just stay there and not do anything but she who was free now was inspired to 
live in that freedom. See, Harriet Tubman teaches us something. Because she understood freedom spiritually through her faith in Jesus and freedom physically from her slave owners. But freedom is so compelling, church, it ought to move us to action. Let me ask you, how good is it to be free? How good is it to be free from sin? To be free from the grip of death? To be free from your sin nature and your enslavements? Is it just I? Is it just cool? Or is it amazing? Is it unparalleled? Is there nothing like it? If God has set you free, then walk in that freedom, empowered by the Spirit, and then go to those who remain slaves. Because as good as it sounds, and as good as it is to be a child of God and know that there's no condemning you, as good as it is to know that you've been free by the Spirit through the work of Jesus, through our triune God, as good as it is to be able to wake up each day and have the power of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you, there are people in your life who today remain condemned by God. There are people in your life today who are enemies of God and His wrath is directed toward them. They are slaves. They've never tasted freedom. They don't know Jesus. They don't know what it is to have God indwell them. They don't know what it's like to be able to have a pathway for victory because every day they concede to sin. They need you who've tasted freedom to go tell them what it means to be free. How God got you how God keeps getting you. Church, will you operate from who you are and not who you used to be? On what will you set your mind? Will it be on the spirit who wants to empower you or the flesh that wants to tear you down? Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is raising you each day and will raise you ultimately. Church, stop getting those samples at Baskin Robbins. I mean, not literally, but. Stop, stop tinkering with sin, trying to manage, saying, I don't want the waffle cone. I'm just going gonna, gonna to do the little things. When God's saying, hey, I've opened this door. Would you run out of it? Will you just flee the temptation and stop just dipping your finger in it? Our God wants to offer that to us. Because when we think there's no way out, he has marked out a pathway for victory. And that pathway for victory is the spirit-empowered life. Church, let's go out and change the world to this good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that you would use wretched people like us We'll never get old. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are so patient, so gracious and kind, God. 
Lord, we know that in, in eternity past, you were there, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal triune God, and you lacked absolutely nothing. You showed love, you gave and experienced love, because you are love. You are good. Nothing lacked, and yet in your divine counsel, somehow, Lord, you thought it right, Lord, in your, in your perfection to create us people who would now shake our fist at you and rebel and that you would die for us by sending your son and that you would send your spirit to empower us. God would never, never fully understand. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for the way it flows. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the victory that you have purchased for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise to our feet as we sing this song to that man thank you God for your greatness Father we come and we're just so overwhelmed by your kindness that those sin feels so strong sometimes Lord remind us God remind us we pray we plead that our sin is not stronger than you Lord you are greater God there's nothing that we're going through that's too big for you God so I pray we walk in this freedom and strength God help us in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, man, it's so good, so good to sing. Uh, worship team, man, thank you all for today, just for the way you served. Um, those, those, yeah. I feel like every song was so on point with what God is doing here, and that's just, that's the spirit at work. Let's just, let's just, let's just call it what it is. That's the Holy Spirit doing his thing. Well, I want to leave you with this blessing from Jude. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be all glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen. Church, go out this week in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the victory of He's accomplished for you. You are dismissed. We'll see you all outside.